15. You know, last week we talked about the anticipation of what's next. Uh, when Mark's original audience was hearing this, I imagine every time the guy would stop to take a drink or take a breath, they were thinking, please don't stop, keep going, tell us what's next. What happens to this Jesus? What happens to the disciples? Where did Peter go? What happened here? What happened there? And, and just the excitement to get into it. And, and so it's been my prayer that as we are beginning to wrap this up, we begin to ask that question, what's next? What happens next? And so when we look at the text we're, we're in today, well, I would submit to you today that our text is actually an incredible paradox. The people mock Jesus. All the people do. And the paradox is they're mocking him while he treks towards the cross, towards death itself, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his disciples, abandoned by his family, all in order to die for those who mock him. Women followers will stand at a distance. John's gospel tells us that he would also be at the foot of the cross. He'd be close enough to hear Jesus speak. But Mark, for his narrative, he wants us to understand that Jesus is as alone as he possibly could be. He's isolated. He's, he's on his own. And so we, we read, if you will stand with me, beginning in verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You may be seated this morning. You see, God's love, when we fully understand it, it's a paradox. It's something that shouldn't happen as the sins of the world are, are heaped upon him, as they mock, as they jeer, as they sneer, as they spit, as they blaspheme, yet he loves in return. 
God is love, we're told. So maybe he doesn't have a choice in the matter. Or maybe he does, and that's just his goodness truly showing through. The theological term is divine forbearance. That he tolerates sin. That he puts up with it out of that goodness, out of that love. The fact that Jesus washes the feet of Judas. That he dies for those who mock him. The sheer fact when we understand the bigness and the sovereignty of God that in spite of the slurs and the slander, he provides breath for the lungs that will mock him and spit hatred at him. That's the true goodness of God. That in spite of all the wickedness, in spite of all the evil pointed in his direction, he provides time for them to repent out of love. That he dies for them. That he shows patience with them. That he's not slow, as some count slowness, writes Peter. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. To put it as plainly as I can, God's goodness is truly limitless. His goodness is truly limitless. Someone recently said, the one who formed and gave purpose to all things, he alone is worthy of all worship and devotion. The sovereign Lord ordered all of creation so that it would bring himself glory, reflecting his unmatchable character and reminding us of the goodness of our creator. And yet there are many who hate our God and will go out of their way to tell us that. They hate Christianity they, they will maintain, even though they, they hate God, they hate everything this book has to say, they will maintain. But even, even still, I'm a good enough person, I'm going to go to heaven. How does that work? You don't believe in the God of heaven, but yet maybe you're a good enough person that you're not going to suffer for all eternity. Is that how that works? The joke online is typically that the atheist's battle cry is, there is no God and I hate him. And they hate when you point that out, by the way. Nobody really says that. Oh, but you do. You do. The atheist does. They go out of their way to mock Christians. To belittle conferences that they have and, and sermons they preach and, and the love that they genuinely show to their fellow man. How could a loving God allow such evil in this country if you look closer, the people of God are the ones first on the front lines to minister to the hurting people. How can you say God doesn't love them? And if we see the mockery of God everywhere, we see it in pride parades, we see it in congressional hearings, in public schools, in state funded colleges, in the media, from cartoons to the nightly news. And yet if God were truly the monster that they paint him to be, this wicked deity who does not love, who only is a God of wrath, and, or as I believe it was Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens who said he seems like a petulant child, if he truly was that, he would smite them before they gave breath to that insult. 
And yet God is good. God is loving. I titled this message, Grace That Gives Breath to Insult. You understand, the very air that we breathe out when we are insulting or heaping hatred upon our Savior, he's the one who provided that air for us to do it. He's the one who created the mind and the synapses in the brain that contrive the wicked things that, that we point towards him. In Revelation, we see people know and fully acknowledge that God is the one behind all that falls upon the earth and they know he's God and they know he's behind it and they know that this is actually his way of pleading with them, please turn to me and be saved. And yet they gnash their teeth at him. Many choose to harden their hearts, to grow deeper in their sin and their idolatry and yet God's goodness is limitless as he shows the grace and mercy that gives breath to the insults that are hurled in his direction. We read again in verses 16 and 17, the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on him. You understand the trial is over but the torture is just getting started. This this group of soldiers, this whole battalion, that is 600 men against one. 600 men surround our Savior to mock, to beat, to ridicule, to treat him horribly. Now, some translations refer to the place where they take him as the, the praetorium. It's, it's actually the governor's official residence. You understand, around 20 B.C., when Herod began to renovate the, the temple, he did such a good job that his critics in Rome said, you're making it a stronghold for the Jews. If they ever rise up in rebellion, the temple is now such a fortress. If we go to fight them, they, they'll be able to hold out there. And so because of this, Herod builds this entire palace to the northwest side, almost touching the temple. It's very close to it. That could be also a military stronghold belonging to Rome. And he names it after Mark Antony. They name it actually the Palace of Antonia. It's in this place the Roman soldiers begin their cruel, barbaric undertaking. The scourging that Jesus had just been put through, the beating with the cat of nine tails, the whip. Modern physicians said that that would have already sent a person into shock after the first few moments. So the idea is, if you, if you will understand this this morning, the idea is they have broken his body and now they're seeking to break his mind, to break his will, to break his soul. They clothe him with a purple cloak. And many of you know this. It is purple that's the color of royalty. I believe I read somewhere they, they made the purple dye from a certain type of slug, which is kind of gross when you think about it. But that's how they would dye the fabric. And it was very expensive. But they spare no expense in their torture, these Romans. Romans. 
As an aside, Matthew's gospel says that it's a robe of scarlet. And so the idea, what we should understand, is that it's a, a deep wine type of color, a deep reddish purple. Why would they do this? Well, for one, it's mockery. For two, he can continue to bleed, and they won't necessarily see it. They won't have to think about that as they continue in their cruelty. It won't show him bleeding as they mock the so-called king. And they take his bare back and cover it with this big purple blanket almost. Open wounds, cuts as deep as fingers, exposed bones. They'll drape this cloth over it. And then one of the soldiers has a brilliant idea. And I say brilliant because it's as cold-blooded as it is innovative. He takes pliable sticks and begins to braid them together. And these sticks have thorns two to three inches long. And I imagine they placed it at first gently upon his hairline. And they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. This is the beginning of the mock coronation of the king. And I'd like to emphasize the mockery of it all. I want to also note that these men have no interest in Jesus. Not really. They don't have any real interest in the Jewish people or what their laws say or their preferences or their religion or anything like that. You should understand this this morning. This is simply the Roman soldier blowing off steam. This is a typical Friday for the Roman. The mistreatment of the prisoner, especially prisoners on their way to death, that is nothing new. It didn't begin with Rome. It certainly didn't end with Rome. For the soldiers, this isn't personal. It's fun. And so here we are. Isn't it ironic that the people who would refer to their enemies of the north as barbarians are actually so barbaric themselves in their torture? And here they are striking Jesus on the head with a reed. It's not an insulting slap. This is a strike meant to beat him to death. This is meant to hurt. This is meant to wound. And should he die, well, they can still crucify him. A dead body will hang on a cross the same as a living one. So they beat him. And with each strike of that reed, each strike of that mock scepter, it drives the thorns deeper into his scalp. As the thorns dig in under his skin and begin to scratch his skull. With each strike, they mock Christ. The word Mark uses for reed is kalamo, and it means a measuring rod. And like I said, it's meant to be a mock scepter for this so-called king. So he stands there, his purple kingly robe, his bloody crown of thorns about his head, and a scepter made of wood. What a disgrace. What an insult. What mockery. And yet as blood drips down his face and onto the ground and into the dirt, each droplet filled with divine power and each blow and each strike that comes out one after the other, we understand 
He allows it. He permits it. This is a brutal counterfeit to a divine truth. At some point, rather than a reed, the psalmist and Revelation both promise us that he will rule with a rod of iron, not wood. And on his head he will have many crowns, John says. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, meaning that he is king above king above king above king. He is sovereign above all things. And he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. And on his robe and on his right leg, he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords. And we hope for that and we look forward to that. But this is not the time for that. Today he's a mockery. Today he's entertainment for these soldiers. And when they'd mocked him and stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, they led him out to crucify him. Now before they're done, John's gospel tells us that Pilate is going to once more bring this broken, bloodied person out and parade him in front of the Jews one more time. And he'll say, behold the man. And the implication is, do you see what he's already suffered? Is it not enough? And still the crowd cries, Crucify him. Crucify him. It's not enough. When Mark says they mocked him, the Greek literally means he's an object of laughter for their own pleasure. You see, it's not enough that they've beaten Jesus to a pulp. Their laughter is meant to further humiliate him, not just, not just to hurt him, but to reduce him to a, a pile of broken skin, bones, and shame. And upon his broken body, the open strips of flesh on his back, they ripped the purple robe off and they put the, the clothes he had been wearing on his back and they begin to lead him out to conclude the morning's torment. At this point, Jesus would have been handed over to a Roman official called the Exactor Mortis, which would translate to the extractor of death. He's the Roman executioner. He's the one who organizes death and torture. Under this man's orders, four men, a centurion at their head, would form an execution squad. One man will hold his feet. Another will lay across his chest. While two will take a hand in each hand and they'll, they'll begin to drive a nail all four will eventually divide his clothes among themselves. But there's a problem, you see. This carpenter, this rabbi, is going to slow them down. And just like you and me, it's Friday. They want to get it over with, right? So, to get things moving, knowing that Jesus is too broken, too beaten to be able to carry his cross, they grab someone else. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They don't ask Simon. They don't bribe Simon. They compel him. This is what the Romans do. This is what they do to the Jewish people. They don't be friendly about it. <laughs> they make this man 
do this. In fact, Jesus earlier had addressed this very thing when he said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's what a Christian is to do. They compel this passerby, this man who was just minding his own business, by the way, coming into the city, maybe for the first time this week, for the Passover holiday. He's a Jewish man coming in from the country, this Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a, was a place, a city in North Africa. It's in modern-day Libya. Jewish people had lived there since the 3rd century B.C. So Simon comes. Now Simon would have been a black man. And so he likely stood out from the crowd. Hence they were quick to grab him and force him to carry the cross. In fact, the word compel, the way Mark uses it, it's very similar to forcing animals on their way to the butcher. Simon can't decline. Simon cannot say, no, I'm sorry, I have two children with me that I have to watch over. Or, you know what, guys, I, I would love to help you out, but I really have another appointment later this afternoon and I can't miss. No, you do what Rome tells you to do. In fact, the guy whose cross you're going to be carrying is an example of what Rome does to those who won't do what they tell them to do. Right? So... He picks up the cross and begins to carry it, aiding in the execution of such a man. Mark makes it a point to mention Alexander and Rufus, the sons of Simon. It's traditionally believed that these men were known to the church that Mark was writing to. In fact, Paul mentions Rufus in his letter to Rome. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. The theory is that Simon didn't just carry that cross that day, but he also had a conversation with Jesus. And as he helped him up that hillside, he was convinced of his innocence and became a follower that very day. The Bible never says this, of course. We, we just kind of connect the dots and believe that through tradition. It's a lovely thought. And Simon is faithful Simon carries that cross. And actually, he just carries the, the horizontal beam for Jesus. He takes it to the top of this hill called Golgotha. Golgotha means place of a skull. And the exact location's not really known, but the Latin Vulgate is where we get the word Calvary. The Latin way of saying Golgotha is Calvaria. Calva meaning skull kind of changes the meaning a little bit, doesn't it? We think of Calvary as this beautiful hill, and it's only because of Christ it has any beauty. Because it's a very ugly place. When we sing songs, we say, oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. That's the place of the skull. The cross is beautiful. That hymn is, is beautiful. But it's that place, Calvary, where our Savior died. And it is a horrendous place. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And you probably recognize myrrh from the Christmas stories, right? It was one of the gifts they brought to baby Jesus. 
that's also used in his death. Nicodemus, John tells us, John 19, 39. Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It would have been used in this instance as a narcotic, a pain-killing agent. Matthew adds that they also added some gall to the liquid. Women of this day were known and to give some kind of hospice care, in a sense. They were known to take this type of drink and give it to patients who were dying, who were suffering, who were in constant pain because it was meant to numb their senses. And yet Jesus will refuse this. He'll not have his pain dulled, not yet. He'll feel the suffering and stay conscious for what happens next. By the way, this was a mercy of the Romans. I may not think of it that way, but that's exactly what it was. In a sick way, so was the scourging. So was the beating. So was the humiliation. It was all meant to take the life out of a crucifixion victim so that they wouldn't wiggle or struggle once they were pinned to the planks of wood. They wouldn't fight for their life. You see, I say it's a, a mercy because in the Roman mindset, it just made their suffering faster and end sooner. Jesus will, of course, eventually drink sour wine combined with this passage. This is prophetic from Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. But everything's happening so fast now, I doubt anyone catches it in the moment. And later when the disciples are rehashing this, Mark understands this, and that's why he includes it in his gospel account. But the mockery and the torture continue. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. You notice something when you read the gospel accounts that none of the gospel writers, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, nor John, go into the details of what takes place exactly during crucifixion. Because their audience knew all too well. Their friends, their family, their church members had all experienced that type of torture in their life. No need to remind them of that. You saw crucifixion when you walked down the street in some Roman cities. No need to remind them of that. And yet for all the physical suffering Jesus has undergone, it's nothing compared to the spiritual anguish he's feeling in these moments. And we'll eventually see that come to a head. John tells us they divide the clothing into four parts, the spoils, the rewards of being on that execution squad, you see, all his clothes, except perhaps, possibly, a loincloth that they might have been gracious enough to let him keep. Other than that, everything else is removed, and it's meant to add to his further humiliation. And Mark tells us it was the third hour when they crucified him. The nailing, the three-eighths of an inch wide square nail, through the base of each palm, angled inward to exit outside of his wrist. They bent his knees. They placed the flat of his feet against a board called the stipes. They drove a nail through each foot. The soldiers tilted the cross, that horizontal beam, guided it up that vertical beam as well. The patibulum uh, is what it was called. 
and it's guided and placed on that vertical plank, falls into place. And they would hoist Jesus as he's nailed to those two boards. They would hoist the cross up and let it drop to the bottom of a hole with a jarring thud. They would drive wages, uh, sorry, wedges, wedges between the beam and the sides of the hole to keep the cross upright, to keep it from wiggling and falling. And this happens at 9 o'clock in the morning. Some of you might get confused if you read in John's Gospel. It says that he, it was the sixth hour when Pilate sentenced him, and now Mark says it's the third hour when he's crucified. We can understand that John is likely using the, the Jewish time in Rome, uh, sorry, in, uh, so I think I got those mixed up. John's likely using the Roman time, which counted from midnight, hence 6 a.m., and Mark uses the traditional Hebrew time, the third hour, meaning third hour since sunrise. So the sun comes up at 6, Jesus is crucified at 9. By 3 p.m., he'll be dead. But the mockery of the insults continue. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... And Mark is the only gospel that includes the official charge leveled against Jesus. It was a Roman custom to write the name of the condemned man and the description of his crime on the board and then attach it to the cross so that everybody knew what he did so they don't make the same mistake. Almost each gospel describes it differently. And the reason being, John tells us, it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and, and in Greek, so there's no mistaking what was going on. Pilate does this on purpose. It serves his purpose. It's not just a mockery of Jesus. It's intended as a mockery of the Jews themselves, the entire nation of Israel. In other words, what he's saying is, you see what happens to the would-be warlords, the would-be gangsters, the would-be people who would fight back against Caesar. You see what happens to those who would gather people around them and try to have a following and do something that might oppose Rome. This is the fate of those who would dare to challenge Caesar. Pilate did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah. He didn't care about that. But you don't let an opportunity to remind the people who are under your feet you don't let that go to waste to remind them where they belong, where they should be. That's what he does. Remind the Jews they have no king but Caesar. Remind them they are subject to Rome. Nobody is going to come and save them. Nobody is going to help them. And anyone who would dare try will end up like this man. This is what happens to them. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. These robbers were very much like Barabbas. We saw last week, he, he was probably a friend of theirs. Luke tells us they, they know the details of Jesus' trial, so it's possible they were paraded around with Barabbas when the, the time came. If you pardon the pun, they were hanging out quite a bit that day, these robbers and Jesus. Verse 28, you might notice in some translations it's missing from our slides too, but it reads, and the scripture was fulfilled that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Some think that was added later to Mark's account, but Luke also says this. The scripture must be fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about 
him has its fulfillment. Scripture, of course, is Isaiah 53, 12. So it's referencing. And so our Savior's hanging on this cross. He's surrounded by mockers. He's alone. We know, again, John is near. His mother's near. But Mark wants us to understand the reality is Jesus is hanging there by himself with no one who can help him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. It means they, they literally were slandering him. They were blaspheming him. They wagged their heads. This is a common gesture in this culture, in this era, it's a, to, to show derision. The psalmist says, prophesying about this event, Psalm 22, 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And their words, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, even here, even in this very moment, Christ's words are twisted, manipulated, and, and thrown in his face, used against him. Save yourself, come down from the cross. The word save is sozo, it means deliver yourself, rescue yourself, come down from the cross. Jesus, you healed the blind. You made the mute to speak. You gave new legs to the lepers. You calmed the storm. You fed 5,000 people, 4,000 people. You've walked on water, surely removing a few spikes from your hand and feet. Well, surely that, that's no, no big task. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You understand that while this is going on, the chief priests understand they are also objects of mockery by Rome, by what Pilate has done. They see the sign. They know they're a part of this. They know they've played a key role in this. But in their mind, it has to be done. They don't say it out loud where it can be heard by others. But they hear it amongst them, one another in their small huddle. He saved others. He cannot save himself. The sign calls him the king of the Jews, but their taunt is the king of Israel. He's the one who would save Israel. He's, surely he can come down that they might see and believe. This would have been the great sign that they craved, the answer to all their riddles. Surely it would have been enough to prove that he was the Messiah to them. And again, this morning, church, that's the paradox. That's the problem. To save others, Jesus cannot save himself. To save them, he must refuse to save himself. If he is truly the Christ, he must not come down, but hang upon the cross as an atonement for the sins that are being performed against him at that very moment. This is the goodness of God fully on display for all the world and all of history. He's been lifted up onto the cross and the unlimited goodness of God allows breath within the very lungs that spew hate and mockery as he bleeds for them. 
Those who were crucified with him also join in because misery and savagery love company. Augustine would write, Such he appeared on the cross, such when crowned with thorns did he exhibit himself disfigured and without comeliness, as if not the Son of God, such did he seem to the blind. They don't understand. They don't see who he truly is. Though they were given eyes to see and ears to hear, they would, they would have to understand that it is only his grace that gives breath to their insult. It's the unlimited goodness of God that they can stand before God incarnate and are not struck down. Instead, he dies for them that maybe one day, not far away, on the day of Pentecost perhaps, some of them, maybe many of them, may call upon his name and repent and, and receive forgiveness. When they acknowledge they were wrong, when they repent, when they turn and they receive him as Lord, as truly King of the Jews. That's the goodness of God. That's the unlimited goodness of God. I'm going to move to close in just a moment, but I think it's important we revisit those two men hanging beside Jesus. Mark tells us both of them were mocking him, and yet one of them will realize what's happening and repent. Luke tells us like this, that the one of them kind of snaps out of it and he says to the other, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I love how that Scottish preacher, Alistair Begg, says it. And I'm not going to try and copy his accent. I'm not that good. But he says, if you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If your answer is, because I. If it's in the first person, because I believe, because I did this, because I am this, because I'm continuing this, it's not the right answer. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because Christ. You think about the thief on the cross. Beg says, I can't wait to meet that guy one day. How'd that shake out for you? How'd that work out for you? You were cussing the guy out with your friend one moment. The next minute you're, you're pleading with him for forgiveness. You never been to a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know anything about church membership. And yet you made it. You made it. How'd you make it? That's what the angel must have said when he saw the guy walking around. How'd you get here? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. Well, you... All right, let me get my supervisor. <laughs> he goes, he gets a supervising angel. Well, I've just got a few questions for you. Are you clear on the justification of faith, the whole doctrine about that? And the man probably would say, I've never heard of that in my life. Well, well, what about the, the idea of sola scriptura? What's that mean? And the guy just stares, and eventually in frustration, he says, why are you here? What, what brought you to heaven? How'd you get here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. That's why I'm here. In church, that's the only answer we can give. 
that the man on the middle cross said we can. It's the only answer. And if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves day in and day out, every day, what we begin to do is we begin to trust in ourselves. We begin to think that we've done it on our own. If I take our, my eyes off the cross, I can only give lip service to its effectiveness. And I begin to live as though my salvation depends on me, and that is the height of human arrogance. It's only the cross of Christ that deals with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of pride of man and says, you know, I can figure this out. I'm okay on my own. Begg quotes this hymn. He says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Church, it's because of him. Because of his goodness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back this morning as we close and we sing this last song. I would ask you once again, maybe for the first time, maybe for the billionth time, look to the cross of Christ. Those who are struggling, those who are wrestling, those who are hurting, look to the cross of Christ. Will you stand as we close in worship this morning?